Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, speaker Pastor Steve Benninger gives a sermon entitled, The Three Chairs. You can find the sermon outline and video for this message at enewlife.com or the New Life Church Kahana mobile app. You know, 20 summers ago, uh, I was sitting in a stadium with 60,000 guys at a Promise Keepers event, and I heard a message from a man named Bruce Wilkinson. And it it opened my eyes and it impacted me deeply. And I've since found out that that same message uh, impacted a lot of men deeply through the years. And we've preached that message here uh, several times over the course of the last 20 years. But I realize it's been quite a while since we last did it. And lately I felt prompted to preach it again for the benefit of those of you who've never heard this message or those of you who are younger It's called The Three Chairs, as you might have guessed, and uh, this is my, this is the Steve Benninger version of it, adapted and modified with permission, and uh, this sermon illustrates a principle that's that's both very enlightening and, and very convicting. The principle is this, there's a tendency over time for spiritual fervency and devotion to lose intensity from one generation to the next. Or said another way, the the baton of faith faces some some obstacles as it is being passed from parents to children and down to grandchildren. When it comes to loving God and embracing the truths of the Bible, it comes to living lives devoted to Jesus, many have observed this phenomenon, and it's kind of sad. There's kind of a generational drift further and further and further away from the Lord. As one man wrote, what is believed in one generation is often assumed in the next and can too easily be forgotten or even denied altogether in the generation that follows. Now, this phenomenon can be observed in individuals, in families, and also in larger institutions. Think for a minute about our universities, especially our Ivy League schools. I don't know if you know this, but 86 of the colleges that were first founded in the United States were founded for the purpose of promoting the claims of Jesus Christ. And that list includes Harvard and Yale and Princeton. Those were founded in order to train Christian pastors. One of the early mottos of Harvard University was this, for Christ and for his church. In the student handbook, some of the early guidelines for student life included this, everyone should consider the main end of of his life and studies to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Seeing that it's the Lord who gives wisdom, everyone shall seriously pray in secret, seeking wisdom from God. This is in the student handbook of Harvard back in the early days. And a third guideline, everyone shall so exercise himself by reading the scriptures twice a day. Well, obviously, those tenants are not valued quite so highly these days, right? What happened? What happened? Well, among other things, the natural tendency to drift away from God-centered thinking and God-centered living wasn't identified, it wasn't addressed, 
and it wasn't sufficiently confronted. Think about our public school system here in the U.S., established in 1647. You know what the chief textbook was? The Bible, the Word of God, that's right. You probably know the scriptures were actually viewed favorably in our country, in our country and in our public schools for many generations. We were talking about this in our staff meeting just the other day, and several of our more, shall I say, seasoned members of our staff were telling us that as recently as the 1960s, they remember in public school reciting the Lord's Prayer. They remember their teachers quoting Scripture from the Bible in the public school classroom in the 1960s. Now, I myself was not around then, so I had to take their word for it. Actually, I was around, but I was out on the, west, the wild west coast, and I don't remember much Bible reading or prayer in my public school classroom. We all know that spiritual drift has, has happened, has occurred, right? It has happened. In recent years, there have been teachers fired just for having the Bible on their desk in their classroom. There's been a, a precipitous slide away from a favorable view of Christianity in just the past two generations in our country. How did that happen? I live in the church world, and so I think a lot about this principle as it plays out in congregations across our land. I mean, how many churches that were vibrant and alive back in the, the 70s and the 80s and full of people who were hot for God are now cold and, and lifeless and dead just a few decades later? Every so often, my parents will go back to the church where we were raised, where we grew up. And every time they go, it always disheartens them. Back in the day, the Jesus movement invaded that church, the early 70s, and things were popping and sizzling and happening, and hippies were getting saved. And I remember the singing and the services was just anointed by the Holy Spirit. And there were these youth afterglows that you would go to and and testimonies were being given, and the place was alive. But now, as they say, it's just a shell of its former self. Generational slide set in. Things didn't get passed down. I dropped by on a trip uh, home a few years ago and stopped in, and the thing they seemed most excited about were the new pews that had just been installed a few years prior. I remember driving away, and I was just sad in my spirit. I was just sad. It's like, what happened? And believe me, I think about this principle a lot when it comes to our own church here as we have hit the 30-year mark as a church. And I pray, I pray that that won't happen to us. We know this principle plays out in families as well. The, the baton of faith that was gripped so tightly by one generation of parents, can too easily be fumbled during the handoff to the children. And the impact on their kids, the grandchildren, is, is huge. So to illustrate this in this sermon, we're going to use these three chairs, okay? First chair, we're going to call this the first generation of Christians. I call this the, uh, the committed the committed folks. These are the folks who, whose lives were invaded by God at some point in their life, usually after the age of 13. God became real to them. They responded in faith. And life for them became life with God. You know what I'm talking about? Their heart was set aflame. They were captivated 
by Jesus Christ, hot for God, loving Jesus, living it out. The Bible alive, meaningful, in the Word. Church, a place they love to go. First chair Christians, first generation. Second chair is going to represent another generation that we'll call the the conflicted generation or the, the compromised generation. Their experience with God is more secondhand. I mean, they were raised by, by first-chair parents, but, but their experience is, is, is second-hand for them. Now, they know the answers. They were raised in church. They know how church goes. But as they grow older, they weren't really hot for God. Not really. To them, their parents started to seem, especially as they entered into their teen years, kind of narrow-minded, a little bit fanatical. Second-chair folks sure didn't want to be viewed as fanatics by their friends, they didn't, but they didn't want to be looked down as like reprobate heathen or pagans either. So in church, they learn how to play the game and look pretty good in church. When they're with their friends, they looked a little bit more like their friends. When they're with the neighborhood kids, they looked a little bit more like the neighborhood kids. We call that chameleon Christianity. I'm an expert in that. When this generation reaches their late teens and 20s, they become internally conflicted. You know why? They want just enough of God in their lives to appear respectable in certain settings so they won't feel too guilty about their sins, but they're also enamored and enthralled by what the world has to offer. So first chair Christians, second chair folks, third chair we call the critical and the comfortable. So these people were raised in the homes of second-chair parents. And at some point in time, they began to see that their parents were hypocrites. And so oftentimes, third-chair kids start to become critical of Christians, critical of the church. They look at their second-chair parents and say, you're hypocrites. I see how you live at home. And then somehow when you get to church, you kind of turn it on and you appear all spiritual and you got this different voice and this different walk at church. But I live with you. And I see what you watch on TV. And I see how you entertain yourself. And I, I hear you on the telephone with your friends and what you say. And they begin to kind of despise the brand of Christianity that they grew up with. But they begin to feel more and more comfortable with the ways of the world. Complacent towards the things of God. And really, they're far, far from God. They start getting involved in things that, that their parents might be a little bit uncomfortable with, but their, their grandparents wouldn't ever be caught dead doing. They're comfortable, they're critical, and they're complacent. I wonder, if any of you have, is this resonating with anybody? Have you, have you seen any of this phenomenon play out in your life or in your family? I wonder. Where do we see this phenomenon in the Bible? If you have a Bible, go to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. The great leader of the children of Israel, Joshua, he'd led them into the promised land across the Jordan River that God had once again parted, just like he had done the Red Sea. The walls of Jericho fell down. Children of Israel had been in the promised land for a while, and Joshua decided one day to gather them all together. 
And he challenged them to renew their devotion to Yahweh, to the Lord God Almighty. Listen to his words in Joshua 24, 14. Now, therefore, he says this to the people, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it's the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So you can tell, which chair was Joshua sitting in? Joshua was a first chair guy, right? <laughs> and he wanted the people that he led to sit in that same chair. That's what first chair people do. They know the Lord. They've seen God do amazing things in their lives. They're committed to God. And they know that first chair living is the best way to live. And they want other people to get in on that. It's like, come over here. This is where the action's at. But the generation coming up behind those hot-for-God people face some particular challenges. Let's look at that. Judges, chapter 2, just a few chapters later now. And here's what it says in Judges 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, this is the Lord speaking now, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. Look at this next phrase. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Verse 6, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went, went back each to his inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So now, do you see it? Here's a second generation referred to here as the elders who outlived Joshua. And they served the Lord too, but we can see that it, it, it wasn't quite the same, was it? In fact, truth be told, compromise had seeped in. Instead of driving out the ungodly people, instead of driving them out from the land like the Lord had commanded them, they, they made some accommodations. They made some allowances. They let the the folks settle in there with them and live side by side. And, and over time, they'd let themselves become influenced by the, the surrounding culture. Yeah, when they were confronted, they felt guilty about it, and they knew the Lord. They knew that God would forgive them if they confessed. But their, their, their contrition was short-lived, and their, their subsequent devotion to the Lord was not as white-hot 
as Joshua's was. It was on and off, up and down. The ways of the pagan people that they lived among were kind of growing on them. And so from time to time they would cave in and and worship other gods, foreign gods, and they would grieve the Lord God of heaven. And so this second generation, these second chair folks, would kind of waffle between serving God and following God or serving the world and following the world. They were a conflicted generation, internally conflicted. Then we see a description of their kids, their children, the next generation to come on the scene. Judges 2, verse 10. So all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, the second generation now passing off the scene. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So it's pretty plain to see, isn't it? We see three generations of God's people drifting, drifting further and further away from the Lord. Did you see it? Joshua and his peers, his contemporaries, the elders who outlived Joshua and their children, the third generation. These folks, committed to God, captivated by God, saw the works of God, saw the walls tumble down. These folks heard about the works. They sat around the campfire at night, heard the stories from the first generation believers of all that God had done. But their passion for Jesus didn't burn quite as brightly as their parents conflicted, compromising, waffling. This generation, it says, knew not the Lord and knew not the works of the Lord and did what was evil in the sight of God. Three generations successively further and further from God. The first chair, folks, the first generation experienced God's presence and activity firsthand. They had stories not from years ago, but from their lives. They said things like, you know, this past week, the Lord did this. I heard from the Lord about this. These folks had kind of a second-hand knowledge. They'd heard some stories, but it hadn't really been real for them. Third-chair folks had no personal experience of God's activity. These folks knew the Lord. These folks knew about the Lord. These folks did not know the Lord. These folks saw his works. These folks heard about his works. And the third chair generation did not know his works. You say, where else do we see this? Well, think about David, the shepherd boy who became king, the poet, the one who slew Goliath. David, Solomon, the sophisticated man about town had a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom. Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Do you know the story? David was a first chair follower after God, wasn't he? David had a heart that was passionate for God. I mean, think about some of the things he wrote 
O God, thou art my God. Psalm 63, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory, even as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul follows hard after you. That's David. What about Solomon? Well, Solomon started out pretty good, didn't he? God said, what do you want? I'll give you anything. And he said, what? Wisdom. Give me wisdom. And God gave him wisdom, and then he followed that up with riches and wealth and prominence. But you know what? I don't know if you've read the end of Solomon's life. It didn't turn out so well. It didn't turn out so well. His devotion to God was short-lived. Listen to 1 Kings chapter 11. Verse 1, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Did you know that? Well, I thought this guy was the wisest guy in the world. Yeah, he was when he was younger. He loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after other gods. But Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 wives. One's enough. I mean, seriously. 700 wives? Yikes! And princesses and 300 concubines. What are you thinking? You see the wisest man that ever lived. And his wives, listen, turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of, his, of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. Man, are you kidding me? The guy with all the wisdom. Remember, he's the one who said, I sat at the feet of my father and learned from him. In his later years, he turned away from God. His devotion was short-lived. And his son, Rehoboam, no heart for God. No heart for God. David's desire was to build a temple, a place of worship for the Lord. Solomon's desire was to build a temple, yes, but what he really wanted to build was a palace. And what Rehoboam, his son, wanted to build was an empire, put his name on it. The kingdom was divided under him. Now, David was not perfect, and first chair people are not perfect, and they'll readily admit that. David sinned. David had weaknesses. David had Achilles' heels. But how did he handle his sin? You read Psalm 51. You read Psalm 52. His heart, when he was confronted, was broken over his sin, and he repented. Solomon compromised his convictions, and we don't, we don't find records of Solomon's contrition and repentance and returning back to the Lord like his dad. Rehoboam rebelled against God, pretty much wanted nothing to do with him. He rejected wise counsel. It says he listened to his friends, he listened to his peers, he rejected the wise, godly counsel of the older generation. He'd had enough. David aimed to please God. Solomon, it seems, aimed to please others, especially his wives, 
Rehoboam aimed, aimed to please himself. Think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob or Esau. Take your pick. Abraham, friend of God. Friend of God. Focused on God. You read about Abraham in the book of Genesis, and when he would go to a new place, you'd find him first always building an altar. Worship was the priority, and then he would build a well. Worship before work. His son Isaac grew up. He, he was more of a people pleaser. He was more of a guy who, who wanted peace at any price, and you find him making little concessions, little compromises. And he focused on God, yes, but also on others, others' opinions. When he rolled into a town... You read it, it says he built a well first and maybe an altar, prioritizing work over worship. Think about Jacob, <laughs> the heel grabber, the schemer, the deceiver. His focus was mostly on himself, especially in his earlier days. He was the guy who deceived his father. Remember, he dressed up like his brother when Isaac was blind and, and basically swindled him out of his blessing and his birthright. He was about himself. You say, is this in the New Testament anywhere, this, this pattern of generational drift? Think about the words that are used in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus' words describing a particular church. He talked about people who were hot, people who were cold, and people who were what? Lukewarm. You're lukewarm, you're tepid. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Revelation 3, 16. Paul wrote about this. He talked about those who are spiritual, those who are carnal, or in other translations, worldly or fleshly, and those who are just the natural man, not having the Spirit of God. So, do you see this? This generational drift, this spiritual regression from generation to generation where, where each succeeding generation gets a little bit further from God, a little bit further from God, less fervency, less passion, less devotion, more accommodating with the ways of the culture and the ways of the world. I'd like to offer some of my own observations. So that was Bible. This is now Steve, okay? And I don't put as much weight on this as we, as we just put on the Scriptures. From my own experience of being a pastor in my own life, here's what I've experienced. First chair people live to please God. They're about God. They're, their lives are God-centered. When, when they wake up in the morning, they're thinking, I wonder what the Lord wants me to do today. Lord, good morning. I'm here. I'm yours. I belong to you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for another day to be alive. Thank you for breath in my lungs. Thank you. I, I live for you. What do you want? Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life today. Second-tier folks tend to be more about what do others think? What do my friends think? What, what, what do the people at church think? What do my friends think? What, do, what does this person think? What does that person think? They tend to be more horizontal in their outlook and mindset. And people sitting in the third chair are just like, what do I want? <laughs> my kingdom come, my will be done on earth. Um, it's more about advancing their own cause than my experience. Sometimes first chair Believers are kind of fanatical. They're certainly viewed that way by second and third chair, but they're like, these guys are kind of fanatics. I mean, they go to church all the time. You know, they're talking about Jesus. Second chair folks don't want to be called fanatics. They fear that. 
It's like, don't, don't group me in with that category. <laughs> I mean, I'm good with God and church and all that, but, but I don't, I don't want to be known as one of those guys. People sitting in the third chair, they're, they're, uh, they're sitting here and they're, they're going, you know what? You're a hypocrite and you're a fanatic and I don't want to be like either of you. I don't want what you got. They pretty much reject the brand of Christianity that, that, that they grew up with. They saw it, they saw the hypocrisy, and they're like, I want, I want none of that. I'm not really interested in that. I didn't see any reality there. First chair Christians see Christianity as a relationship with God. A love relationship with, with our Savior. Second chair folks see Christianity as a religion. I mean, they grew up in church, right? They were dragged to church by their first chair parents, and so they know the stuff. They know the Bible. They know the books of the Bible. They know about Daniel in the lion's den. They know about Noah in the ark. They know about who swallowed the whale. No. They know the stories. But, but what got communicated to them was the, the rules, the list of rules, the things that good, good Christians do or don't do. They see it as a religion. Third chair folks reject Christianity, pretty much, at least the brand they were raised with. And, and we need to make that distinction between true Christianity and the brands of Christianity that we contend to pass on to our kids or grandkids. First chair folks cultivate deep convictions. They might even say things like, you know, we're going to be in church three times a week. Kids, we're going to church. <laughs> That's what we do. I don't, in my home growing up, my, I grew up in a first chair family. I don't remember having debates about whether we're going to church or not. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, that's what we do. The thought never entered my mind to even challenge that. We didn't drink alcohol in our family. Your, your family may have different convictions. There's something my parents did because that was their understanding of a way to be devoted to God and controlled by the Spirit. Convictions. Second chair folks who raised in those homes, they know the answers, right? They, they know the answers. They've won the Iwana Awards and the Bible quiz games and the sword drills. They know the answers. Third chair folks, they're a little jaded. They're a little tainted. They, they pose questions that are often derogatory, you know? How, is, how could God send people to hell? I mean, seriously. I mean, we, li we live in a modern culture. I mean, they begin to challenge God. Think about first chair folks. Holiness is a delight. We just love the Lord and we love righteousness and we want to do good because we love good. For these second chair people, holiness is more of a duty, an obligation. It's like, okay, yeah, I guess I shouldn't be doing that. Sorry. <laughs> and, you know, these guys just dismiss it. Just write it off. It's despised even. How about work? The first chair folks, work is a platform for ministry. These folks are Christians who happen to be accountants. They're followers of Jesus who happen to be IT people. They see themselves primarily as followers of Jesus. And they see their work as a platform for being a light at the office or at the plant or at the campus or whatever. Work is a platform for ministry. These folks, work is a way to earn a living and support my family. Nothing wrong with that, right? They're not so concerned about being a light <laughs> at the office. Light's kind of under a bushel there. 
And for these folks, work is a way to get ahead. It's a way to advance yourself, climb the ladder, be successful. First chair Christians want to raise godly kids. That's their prayer. You know, they, that's why they have kids. They want to raise a, a godly seed, a godly generation. Second chair folks want to raise good kids who will grow up and be respectable citizens. Third chair people want to raise successful kids. It's about that. First chair folks are devoted to church. They view church as, as family. They come to church to meet God. Yeah, they come to see people, but primarily they come to worship and meet the Lord. Second chair folks, when they come to church, they're, they're chameleons. They can play the church game. They know how that works. Kind of two-faced. They view church more as a duty or an obligation. Honey, we need to go to church. Come on, kids. Let's do this. They attend church first to, to see and be seen by people. God, yeah, I get that. It's mo- mostly about who's there and who am I talking with and who sees me there. Third chair people, they don't go to church. They might be CEOs, Christmas and Easter only, maybe. They've, they've, they're de-churched. They've had enough. They view the church as full of hypocrites. These folks possess faith. These folks profess faith. These folks really don't say they have any faith. These folks are born again. These folks are not born again. They don't know the Lord. These folks? Question mark. Question mark. Still tracking with this? All right. Now, I think as real as this phenomenon is, I think it's possible to jump to some wrong conclusions. You hear this message and, and your brain's firing, you know, and you're making some connections in your mind, and I, I think it's, it's easy to make some faulty conclusions or draw some faulty conclusions. First is, this is a faulty conclusion, okay? Well, I guess it's all predetermined then. My parents were second-generation Christians, so I guess I'm doomed to be a third-chair rebel. Bummer. I wanted to love Jesus, but I can't because my parents sat in the second chair. No, not true. It might be a a tendency or a, a common pattern, but it's not set in stone. Your genes are determined by your parents, but your destiny is not. You can be hot for God even if your parents were not. Not only that, but just because your parents sat in the second chair during your years when you left at home, or when you lived at home, I'm sorry, doesn't mean that they're never going to change. Your parents can change. God is a God who changes lives, right? I wonder if anybody in this room has ever seen one of their parents, or both of them, switch chairs at some point in their life. Anyone like that? You saw your parents switch chairs? Lift your hand. I just want to see. Oh, more than I thought. Probably a dozen or more. This can happen. God transforms lives. God can have mercy on them. If your parents are far from God, pray for them. Pray for them maybe with this visual in your mind. Lord, take them from here to here. The second, I think, faulty conclusion is that all of this is purely a a closed system. It's cause and effect. You're hearing me give this message, and I I can read some of your minds who are parents. Well, 
my kids don't love Jesus. My kids are sitting, I mean, on, my kids are sitting over in that third chair. That means I must be a chameleon, two-faced, phony, second chair Christian. I know some of you are thinking that. My son doesn't love Jesus, so I must be lukewarm. And I would say, maybe so, maybe not. In our small group this past week, we covered the story of Samuel and his sons. Samuel, one of the godliest leaders, prophets that Israel ever had. But it's said of his sons, Joel and Abijah, that they didn't walk in their father's ways. 1 Samuel 8 says they perverted justice and took bribes and turned aside after gain. And as a result, the people didn't want Samuel's sons ruling over them, judging them. Sometimes, godly parents have rebellious children. Did you know that? Think about about God. The perfect parent had rebellious children, did he not? Didn't he? Didn't Adam and Eve decide to go their own way? Is that somebody's phone or something? (laughs) Okay. Yes, parents have much influence in those early years, but as our kids grow up, start to make their own choices about things, especially as they get up into their teen years and into their 20s, don't make the mistake of looking at someone else's kid who's far from God right now and just concluding that they're an apathetic, lukewarm Christian. That might not be true. Their heart might be broken over the condition of their sons or daughters. They may love Jesus with all their heart. You can't take a snapshot of that kid at one point in their life and say, well, that's the way they're going to be forever. No. No. God may have mercy on them. Most parents I know in this church are trying their best to love Jesus and and live in his way, and and they don't need the condemnation of others piling on when their kids aren't getting it. Plus, I know parents who have a kid in each chair. What do you say about that? Son, daughter, daughter. Daughter, son, daughter. Son, son, son. Daughter, daughter, daughter. There is no equation And I'm certainly not preaching this message to pile on feelings of guilt and shame for those of you parents who have children sitting in the second or the third chair. That's not my intent at all. But I am saying to you to listen to whatever it is the Holy Spirit is saying to you through this sermon tonight. Because I know he has something for you. Maybe you really have been a second or third chair parent yourself. And he's stirring up in you a strong desire for something else, something better, something more. He's telling you that you can switch chairs. It's not too late. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you can switch chairs. And may I suggest that if you're sitting in the third chair, to just go ahead and leapfrog over the second and go all the way to first chair. I've sat here. This is the most miserable place to sit. I spent years in the second chair. I was the poster child for a chameleon Christian. I knew how to be like the kids at church when I was at church. I knew how to be like the kids at school when I was there. I knew how to blend in with the kids in the neighborhood when I was hanging out in the neighborhood, and it was miserable. This is not a great place to be. So if you're here, just go here. I highly recommend that to you, okay? Now, 
Another faulty conclusion, at least in my theology, is that you can just decide to switch chairs and it'll all happen. I come to believe there's more to it than that, more than just saying to yourself, okay, I think I'll just go ahead and become a sold-out Christian. I'm not saying that making that decision isn't important. It is. It's a great start. But, but with my lenses on now, my gospel lenses on, I would say that it, it needs to be a response to, to a work that the Holy Spirit's doing in you. If the Spirit is stirring you up, say, I don't want to be here anymore. I've spent too much time in that third chair or that second chair. That's, that's one thing. But if it's just a work of the flesh, if it's just something you, need, you think you need to do to shift over so that people will think more highly of you or you'll be more respectable or even for your kids to just look up to you more, it's not going to last. It needs to be a choice prompted by the Spirit of God and motivated by a desire for God's glory and God to look great. If your motive for changing chairs isn't right, then if you do it and you don't see changes in your kids right away, you might be tempted to say, well, it's not working. I'm going to try something else. Is there another chair? (laughs) Decision to become a first chair, on fire, all-in follower of Jesus needs to be made in response to God's spirit. And it needs to be made in light of Jesus' substitutionary death for all your sins on the cross. I mean, that's the only thing that can set you free from everything that puts you in the second and third chair. Pride, complacency, apathy, weak will, compromise, people-pleasing. And so tonight, if you believe that God's Spirit is speaking to you, I urge you to say yes to God. Like Bob Swigerty said earlier, just say yes to God. He wants you to be a first-chair Christian more than you do. Well, those are some faulty conclusions. Let me encourage you as I finish up with just a few things, some observations I've made through the years. Number one, people do change chairs. How many of you would say you were once sitting in one of these chairs and through the mercy of God, you now sit in a better place? Can I see your hands? Yeah, me too. People do change chairs. It can happen. Second, parents do have influence. They do. Don't hear me say that It doesn't matter where you sit as a parent or how you parent your kids, it does. We just need to accept that while we are key influencers in our children's lives, especially in those early years, there are other factors that enter into the picture in their lives. As long as our kids have breath in their lungs, we should never cease praying for them, right? That they'll be moving. Lord, take them. Take them this direction. Take them close. Let them them have some friends who sit here. Bring into their lives some friends who sit here who are the real deal so they can see the contrast. Third, life's just better in the first chair. (laughs) How many of you believe that? A third of you, that's awesome. I mean, do you, I mean, life's better here. This is a good life. This is miserable. These folks are on their way to hell. And that's not good. Life's better in the first chair. Third chair people don't believe that, or they'd be moving unless God's working on them. Second chair people have their doubts, but they've not experienced it for themselves. Look into the Word of God and see if He doesn't affirm that His joy is here. It's here. Fourth, Sustainable first chair living is supported by having at least one 
first chair friend. Rare are the people who can live passionate, single-hearted, fully devoted, hot-for-God lives day in and day out by themselves, isolated. I, I don't know that it's, I've known a handful of people in my life who can do that, do that, but most of us need at least one like-minded, kindred spirit friend in our lives to keep us hot for God. It's kind of like the coals in a fire pit. Think about a fire pit in your backyard on, on your back patio or in your yard at night, you know, and there's that, that orange glow. If you took a pair of tongs and pulled one of those coals out, it wouldn't be long before that coal lost its orange glow and cooled down, right? But if you then placed it back in, in a matter of moments, it would reheat and it would start giving off its orange glow again. That's you. That's me. We need to be around fiery, hot, people with a white hot center if we're going to walk close to Jesus and be first chair believers. Does that make sense? The Bible says, how can one keep warm alone? Good question. How can you stay hot for God by yourself, sustained over a lifetime? So I want to finish with three questions. Number one, which chair are you sitting in? Which chair are you sitting in? Some of you, it's, it's immediately obvious. You knew as soon as I described the chairs, you knew where you were at it's not immediately obvious, one way to know is by kind of thinking about a 10 scale of passion for God with zero being stone cold, no, no heart for God, 10 being white hot, where would you put yourself? And if you say, well, four, five, six, you know where you're at? You're right here. That's called lukewarm. You're in, you're in the second chair. What chair are you in? The back side of your outline, there's three chairs, and I'm just going to ask you to, I don't know, put a stick figure or circle the chair that you think you're sitting in in this moment. Where do you sit? Second, how has this affected your family and friends? What impact has sitting in that chair had on those you care about? What have they missed out on because of where you sit? And third, what is the Spirit of God saying to you today? I'm praying for weeks that God would talk to every one of you tonight. What is the Spirit of God saying to you tonight? May I remind you that Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, was sent from heaven to earth and came and lived and died and rose from the grave so that you could sit here. Apart from that, there are no first chair Christians. That's why he came open up that kind of a, a relationship with God that's full and meaningful and joy-filled and passionate and that directs the course of your life. You have but to repent of compromise, of idolatry, of sinful pleasure-seeking or money-worshipping or whatever he's pointing out. You can express your sorrow and Grieve over sin before the Lord and claim the shed blood of Jesus for forgiveness. Amen? Amen. Well, would you bow your heads with me?
Think about what you've heard tonight. I wonder how many of you would just raise your hand and say, I thank God because he's worked in my life and because of that, I'm sitting in the first chair. And I would raise my hand to give praise to God for that. Praise God. Many, many, many of you. I love that. Thank you. God bless you. Are there others, though, I would say, who were who saying, you know what, my spiritual temperature is not what God would want. I've been sitting in this second chair for too long, and I'm sensing God wants to change that. Would you raise your hands? That's where I'm at tonight. Yeah. Yeah. A number of you. Maybe you're in the third chair. Maybe you need to be saved to give your life to Jesus, to accept his sacrifice for you. And if that's the case, I hope you'll come and talk to a prayer partner in a few moments and just say that. I wonder how many of you would say, I'm, I'm saying yes to God tonight. I, I want for myself what God wants for me. And I, I know I'm going to need a first chair person in my life to help me live that way. I can't do this alone. Here's the challenge I mentioned earlier. I debated whether to do this, so I'm just going to do it. Here's the first chair. If God has stirred you up tonight to say, I want to I sit in that chair. I've been on one of these chairs. I want to sit in that chair. And I'm serious enough about it that, that I'm going to seek out a first chair person to to help me, to be a mentor, a partner in my life. I, I'm willing to take that step. Then I'm going to ask you to come and sit in this chair for a few moments. Look at that cross and say, Jesus, give me the strength to seek out a first chair mentor in my life who can help me sit here, not for just one day or a week or a month, but walk with me so that it becomes a lifestyle. You say, that's hard. Yeah. When I read through the story of Joshua, that's what Joshua did. He created a public accountability when he was challenging the children of Israel that day. So I don't envision there being tons of you, but I believe there's maybe some of you who would come just sit in this chair for a few moments and look at that cross and say, Jesus, take me there and help me find someone who can help me. So Lord, um, stir us up now, Holy Spirit. Speak to us. Have your way. Accept our worship, I pray in your precious name. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's word and seek to know him better through the gospel. Our prayer is that the gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.